I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, continuing to work our way through Romans chapter 2. We find ourselves this morning picking up in verses 4 and 5. Before we, uh, we dig in and get to work, I'm just going to reread verses 4 and 5, and then as is our custom, we'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we'll get to work. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, beginning in verse 4, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, again, we just say thank you for your word to us. It's clarity. It's caution. It's love. It's, it's so beautiful that you call out to us time and again, with clear warnings. You not only offer us the hope of salvation, the, the gift of forgiveness and grace in your Son, but time and again, you tell us, Lord, the consequences if we turn away. Lord, we have all hardened our hearts against you. All of us here this morning have been guilty at one time or another of refusing to allow you to lead us taking advantage of your kindness, taking advantage of your patience, using it to our own purposes, not realizing all the, all the long while that we were offending you, angering you. You make that clear to us this morning, Lord. So, Father, before I enter into your word, I begin to preach. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would move among us this morning, and begin speaking to everyone here, whether they have trusted in your Son or whether they have never trusted in your Son. Lord, our prayer this morning is that our hearts would be soft in your hands, that you may have your way in our lives. We ask that you would do that this morning. Let your Spirit shine on the text. Let your Word ring forth in our hearts. And help us to keep our gaze fixed on Christ, that we may walk with you all the days of this life and all of eternity. We pray you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. He would not listen because he hardened his heart. This ought to be how the tombstone reads of one of the most famous and indeed at that time in history, the most powerful man in the world. If I were to die and be buried and have a, a grave up at uh, Kamloops uh, Hillside Cemetery here, I've, I've said this many times before, my prayer is that it could be written in sincerity and in truth on my tombstone, book, chapter, verse. Many of you have heard me say that over the years. I want my life to be known as the kind of man that is going to deal seriously with what the text says and is going to seek, in my own imperfect way, 
to the best that I can with the Holy Spirit's help to follow and obey. Such was not the case with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a man who heard God's word, who was invited on many occasions to follow God's command and to release his people to worship him, but he would not. Oftentimes when we consider this passage, we think of a recalcitrant, stubborn individual who simply couldn't get on the page, the same page with the Lord. But what we fail to miss is that there was a spiritual dynamic playing out in Pharaoh's heart that is also playing out in our hearts, and it is the spiritual dynamic that Paul touches upon here in Romans chapter 2. You may not be familiar with the story of Pharaoh, so I'll just recount it for you briefly. All of the people of Israel, the Jews, have become slaves in the land of Egypt, and God now desires to rescue them from Egypt that they might gather together as his people in his promised land that they might worship him as his people. But of course, Pharaoh is taking great economic advantage of the free, so-called free labor that the Jews are providing him. And so he is quite reluctant to allow them to leave. And God gives directions through Moses as he's speaking to Pharaoh to let Pharaoh know that God is well aware that Pharaoh will not listen because his heart is hardened. And we see this dynamic play out all throughout the various plagues with which God afflicted the nation of Egypt. It begins in the very, very beginning with the simple miracle of Moses' staff going from being a staff to being a snake and then being back to a staff again. It says in chapter 7 and verse 13 of Exodus, don't flip there, just listen, that Pharaoh's heart, when he saw this miracle, it says, quote, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen just as the Lord had said to Moses. His heart is described as being hardened, that is, it won't hear what God is trying to say through the prophet Moses. He won't hear it. He won't receive it. It is already in a state of hardness. And this hardness is further described when Moses and Aaron performed the first miracle of turning the Nile River into blood. Pharaoh sees this miracle, and it says in Exodus that Pharaoh turned and went back into his house. He did not have regard for the fact that the Nile River had been turned into blood. It says that he, quote, went, turned and went back into his house and would not take this even to his heart. The idea there, when the scriptures present these two terms of hardness of heart and taking it to heart, the idea here is that your heart becomes impenetrable, becomes hard, becomes like stone. And as a result of that, what God is trying to say to you is not received. You will not hear it. You will not heed it. Your ears are working perfectly fine, but your heart, there's a spiritual dynamic at play in which even though you're capable of hearing what God is saying to you, you will not heed it. And of course, this place out through the various plagues that unfold. The next plague is the frogs swarming across the land of Egypt. And in chapter 8 and verse 15 of Exodus, it says, when he saw that there was a respite, Moses had called the frogs back, it says, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, it says, he hardened his heart. And again, gnats. Gnats come. Gnats swarm across the land of Egypt. Again, Pharaoh talks to Moses, says, I'll tell you what, if, you, uh, if you'll call back these gnats, I'll let, uh, I'll let your people go. He doesn't really mean it. And, of course, his wise men come to him at that moment. And they say, this here with the gnats is truly the finger of God. They're telling him, his own advisors, that he is seeing God at work. And, of course, Moses calls the gnats back. And it says in Exodus eight nineteen, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. 
Again, we see it with the swarming flies. The next plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And then, of course, God threatens plague on all the livestock. And again, in Exodus 9, it says, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then the sixth plague comes in which all the people of Egypt are plagued with boils. And it says in chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, up until this point, Pharaoh's heart has been described as hardened, or it has been described as him actively choosing to refuse to listen to the Lord and subsequently hardening his own heart. All throughout, Pharaoh is presented as hardening his own heart. And the reader, if the reader is paying attention to this repetition all throughout the plagues, the reader would come to the conclusion that perhaps Pharaoh is hardening his heart, but surely he can relent at any moment that he wants to. But what we actually see happening here in this dynamic is that God begins to judge Pharaoh by hardening Pharaoh's heart. In other words, there is a spiritual dynamic playing out in Pharaoh's soul for which ultimately Pharaoh is responsible, but at which point Pharaoh loses control. He is responsible for what's happening, but now he is incapable in his own power of reversing it. This is God's active cursing of Pharaoh. It starts with the sixth plague, boils, on the people. And it says in Exodus 9.12, But the Lord hardened his heart, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, so that he did not listen. And this continues on. Hail falls on the crops. Chapter 9, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the thunder and the hail had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart. So after God is described as hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh again is described as acting sinfully, that is, he bears his own moral responsibility, and although God is actively hardening his heart, now Pharaoh continues to harden his heart so that when we come to the last three plagues, the plagues of the locusts, the supernatural darkness, and of course the threat of the archangels striking down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Over and over again it says now that God hardened his heart. There came a moment in which Pharaoh was overwhelmed by the reality of who God was, but he was incapable of pulling back from his wickedness because perhaps unknown to him, he had set in motion a series of events from which he himself could not turn back. He had hardened his heart. This is the phenomenon that Paul is talking about here in Romans. And my plea to you this morning, whether you have trusted in Christ or not, whether you are walking in faithful obedience to Christ or not, whether you're a member of this church or not, my plea to you this morning is that you would wrestle deeply with this question, is my heart capable of being more uh, transformed and shaped by the goodness of God's grace? Will I hear him or will I continue to insist on my own way? And I want you to hear this passage this morning as God's warning in your life that you are playing with something that you do not understand and in which you cannot necessarily reverse it. And so my plea to you this morning is today, if you hear God's voice, that you would repent today and not put it off till tomorrow. Look with me in Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has been uh, 
focusing now on moralists. Perhaps in the, first half, the, the second half of chapter 1, he has been dealing with individuals who are immoral, pagans. And now as he comes to chapter 2, he's writing not only to Gentiles, he's also writing to Jews. And so the Jews could be understood as strict moralists, individuals who follow their own form of self-righteousness. They're good in their own eyes. And he begins to challenge them. And he says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. If you've ever looked at another individual and passed judgment, he says, for in passing judgment on another, you have condemned yourself because you, the judge, have practiced the very same things. So what Paul, what Paul is saying is that if we've ever looked sideways at someone else and said, man, that guy is doing wrong. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Or even if we've just looked at another person and said, man, that guy is doing wrong. In that moment, we knew that they were doing wrong. Paul's statement is, you acknowledge that you also are guilty before the Lord because you've done the exact same things in your own life. And so we all are aware that there is a moral standard. That's what Paul is driving at. We are aware of the reality of a moral law. And he drives a little bit further, and he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, verse 3, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is a rhetorical question that anticipates an affirmative answer. Of course, every one of us wants to give ourselves a pass. We want to justify ourselves. We want to excuse ourselves. All of us will look at everyone else and say, that person shouldn't cut in line at the Wednesday evening fellowship potluck. That's wrong. That's a form of theft. And the Bible says don't steal. And yet every single one of us is tempted to to go to the person towards the front of the line and and to sort of strike up a friendly conversation and be like, yeah, so tell me, how's your week been? And And then we just sort of gradually continue with them in the line well, what are you doing? Why are you here? The, the line is back that way, buddy. But I should be allowed to pass because I'm the pastor and I'm going to be leading the prayer meeting here in just a few moments. And so we come up with these reasons, these excuses for why the moral standard shouldn't apply to us, yet it does despite our attempts at self-justification. Beginning of verse 4, Paul says that we are presumptuous. We are presuming, verse 4, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, what Paul is saying here is that there is a reason why we continue on to have days after today. You have sinned. And you have sinned over the course of multiple days, weeks, months, years, decades. Some of you are here this morning, and you're coming to the end of your life, and you have yet to trust in Christ. And you are thinking to yourself probably that even though years and decades have gone by, I'll still have time later on down the road to repent. Some of you are probably here this morning thinking, you know what, I know Jesus is real, but I'm not prepared to give my life to Christ because if I were to do so, I know I'd have to give up certain things. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wait until the last minute. You're anticipating that perhaps God in his grace and in his kindness, as he has given you so many days up until this day, you're anticipating that in his grace and in his kindness, he'll give you more days. 
And that you will have a deathbed moment in which the doctor will come in and say, this is it, this is the end. And in that moment, you will surrender your life to Christ. This is what you're thinking. But what you have failed to appreciate is that is just not how the heart works. Paul says here, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 18, this is what he's been driving at. I'll just review briefly with you. In verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. It's in the present tense, meaning his wrath is being revealed. In other words, we're not waiting to the day of the Lord when the Lord comes back in judgment. We're not even waiting to the day of our own death in which we'll stand before the Lord to be judged and potentially sent to hell to see God's wrath. We're actually capable of seeing God's wrath right now. And it's actually being revealed right now, Paul says. It is actively being revealed. And so the question is, well, how do we see God's wrath? And, of course, it's easy for us to point to any number of natural disasters, so-called natural disasters. We understand that these are supernatural calamities, an increase in earthquakes, an increase in flooding, famine, drought, and, indeed, it even says in the book of Luke, plagues. Plagues are a sign of God's coming wrath. Jesus, preaching uh, the Olivet Discourse, talks about the end of the world. He says all of these things are but the beginning of birth pains, all pointing as signs to that day of the Lord. But all of these things Jesus describes as signs pointing to a coming wrath. That is not what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, we see his wrath right now. You'd expect Paul to say something about earthquakes and plagues and famine and this sort of thing, but he doesn't. No, what he talks about is individuals who know the truth about God, but harden their hearts and continue in rebellion and defiance against the Lord. And I know we have these chapters here, and so we come to chapter 2 and we turn the page and we think, oh, this is a whole new train of thought, but it's really not. It's perfectly consistent with what he's been driving at the whole time. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, he says, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is how wrath is being revealed, that we know the truth, but we refuse to listen to the truth. And in refusing to listen to the truth, Paul now describes it here in Romans chapter 2 as a hardening of the heart. He says in verse 4, Don't you know that the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience are meant to lead you, he says, to repentance? That's the tail end of verse 4. Now, if you look at verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So that word impenitent is the exact same word as repentance. They're just slightly different constructions, but it's the same root. It's this idea of us turning away from living lives, our lives how we see fit and turning to the Lord. Some of you know this about me. I used to serve in the American military, and so soldiers often drill. Uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, practical benefit in combat and parade marching and, you know, twirling your rifles and all this kind of stuff, but it looks fun. 
and people like to watch it. And so every soldier, Marine, sailor going through boot camp, whether we'll ever do this ever again in our military career or not, we're all going to march in formation and do fancy things out there on the parade deck. And there's a command that is just basic to everything you'll do in parade about faith. The idea is you're marching in step about faith. You turn around, you go back the other way. I'm surprised I'm still able to do that without falling over. (laughs) About faith. That's the idea of the word repentance. You're going one direction, and you change direction. You don't just think about changing directions. You don't stop and say, yeah, I really should be going the other way. I know the way I'm going is wrong. No, that's not what the word repentance means. It means you actually stop going in the direction you're going, and you go in the other direction. Now, most of us, what we do is we say to ourselves, I know how I ought to be walking. I really should try harder to walk that way. But to do so would be difficult. I'm sure I'll make a change here sooner or later. Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that this is unrepentance, or as he says in verse 4, it is impenitence. So impenitence and repentance are two sides of the same coin. To repent is to actually achieve the about face where you turn in the other direction and you start walking the other way. And in verse 5, impenitence is where you do not do the about face. You just continue going in the direction you're going, however you might justify it or excuse it. That's what he's saying here. So he says in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The Apostle Peter makes a similar sort of statement in Second Peter. Again, don't flip there and, and just listen. Peter, talking about scoffers in our present day, says in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, they will say, that is the impenitent, the unrepentant, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, the scoffers are saying everything is the same. Nothing changes. All this religion, all this talk about Jesus that people have been talking about, they've been talking about that for 2,000 years. And essentially what they're saying when they make that statement is everything is just going on exactly as it has been for the last 2,000 years. Surely this is a fairy tale. Surely this is some sort of myth, this religion of Christ. Because everything goes on just as it was before. And Peter corrects that with this assertion. He says, They deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed, the heavens that existed long ago, and the earth that was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And he goes on to talk about the destruction of the world by the flood. Peter's point is to say things have changed. They have not, in fact, continued on, as always, from the beginning. That God has, at many moments in time, interceded and entered into our world to take action for blessing as well as for judgment. He drives a little bit further on into the same chapter, and he says in verse 9, speaking to these Christians, he says, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness." But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
The reason why the Lord has not come back to straighten this mess out for us that we've gotten ourselves into is because the Lord is perfectly content for us to continue on in this mess that we've gotten ourselves into. As he is actively working to bring people to repentance. That's why he waits. That's why he tarries. But what that means is that every day that goes by in which the Lord does not return is a day in which we must be actively seeking to turn and walk with the Lord. The Lord does not give us days, opportunities for repentance in order to affirm us in our sin so that we can continue to say to ourselves, you know what, I've got today and I'll have tomorrow and I'll have more time. And in fact, there will be some point down the road, which I'm on my deathbed, then I'll convert. That's not what the Lord is giving you days for. Every day that you have, every moment, every sunshine, every sunrise, every, every moment with your loved one, every opportunity you have to walk on the beach or to look at the beautiful mountains, every moment you have to kiss your child good morning or tuck them into bed at night, every time you've tasted a good meal, that has been the Lord speaking to you and saying, you have this joy, this blessing from me, but it is only the taste of so much more that is only available to you if you will turn and trust in Jesus. And here's the real kicker of what Paul is saying here in verse 4. We take those joys and we abuse them by not seeing them as the gifts that God has given to us. What we do is We say, I will be satisfied in this small gift, and I will never find my satisfaction in the greatest of all gifts towards which this small gift is pointing. I will never find my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in that moment that that small gift, which is meant to lead you to repentance, becomes a curse. Now, talking about this idea of repentance, as we're talking about about face, doing the about face, I want you to understand that what Paul is alluding to here in this text is so much more than simply just turning around. When we talk about turning around, many of you have in your idea, in your in your minds, this idea that you're walking, and that you'll just stop, and you'll turn, and you'll walk the other way. It's not hard. You're going down the sidewalk, you just decide you want to go a different direction, you just stop, and you turn around, you go the other way. That's all it is. Pastor Josh is saying we need to repent, so all we need to do is just stop and turn and go the other way. Okay, now imagine you're riding a bicycle, and you're riding a bicycle down the street. And the question is, can you turn the bicycle around just as easily as you can turn around when you're walking? Well, you can. It's not hard. You're pedaling and you decide you want to turn around. You have to hit the brakes and slow the bike down a little bit. Maybe you turn hard and you you reverse the bike and you can go in the other direction. But now imagine that you're swimming. And you're swimming as hard as you can in a certain direction in the water. Can you stop and swim the other direction? Yes, you can, but there's a bit of drift involved. Let's take it a little bit further. Let's say you're in a boat. My wife prefers when we're pulling our boat out of the water at the lake that I be the one to drive it because she doesn't want to destroy it because she has been behind the wheel of the boat when we're trying to drive this thing up onto this trailer. 
And she will be the first to tell you that it's a, quite a tricky business. It's not as straightforward as it may look or as it may sound because of drift. So imagine you're out on the lake having a great time, driving hard, and you hear the call of God to repent. You can pull back on the throttle and hit the wheel, but you're not going to just start going the other direction. Your inertia will continue to pull you a long ways down that lake. And the reality is, for some of us, we're not in little speedboats that are actually easy to be turned around after a few lengths of the boat. We're actually driving most of us in giant ocean liners, fully loaded. If you want to reverse direction on an ocean liner, if you've been plowing hard this way for long enough, and you hear the call of God to repent, to do an about-face and change direction, there is so much baggage and so many things that have weighed you down. You have got so much mass and so much momentum that if you're going to change direction, the moment you choose to do that, you're still going to have to coast a long ways this way before you'll be able to turn around and come back the other direction. This is what Paul is warning us against. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God gives you all of these extra days because in his wisdom, he knows what repentance will actually require, what will actually take, and that you are a sinner rutted in a certain path, and that as you're winding your way down this path, if he's going to call you back to walking with his son, it's going to take a whole bunch of effort and energy on your part to actually achieve repentance. Those extra days, those extra opportunities, those extra moments, God gives you the gift of his patience and his forbearance so that you will have the time to repent and come back. Not so that you will have the time to say to yourself, he gives me time and he'll give me more time and I've got all the time in the world and I won't bother turning around until I feel like it. That is the exact opposite of what God is giving you. You say, why does it have to be like that, pastor? Why can't I just be more like the guy walking that just turns and about faces and I can just repent on the turn of a dime? That is exactly what Paul is hammering in verse 5. Look at how he describes it. He says in verse 5, It is because of your hard and impenitent heart that you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. The reason why you cannot just stop anytime you want and repent apart from God's help, is because there is a dynamic, and Paul is spelling this out for you in verse 5. He doesn't say that your hearts are hard or impenitent. These are not synonyms of each other. Paul isn't describing, he isn't using two words to describe the same thing. He's describing two different phenomenons that are taking place in your soul. Your heart, naturally, in its sinful condition, does not want to repent. And as a result of that, your heart becomes Hard. That is what Paul is driving at here. In other words, I use this wonderful analogy to say that repentance is hard, that it will take effort, and that you're going to coast a whole long way this way. But there's another way in which we can understand the spiritual reality of what's going on here. The Bible never uses terms like destiny or fate as though these are some sort of abstract spiritual forces at play in our world. The Bible always talks about God, who is in control. And the Bible says that we are under his curse. The Lord is the Lord of the curse at all times. 
what we do is we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're in control of this curse, that we can limit or mitigate against its effects. We have no comprehension of just how deep and ingrained the curse goes, how it pervades every element of our being. And so we tell ourselves that we're in control. But what we're really doing in that moment is we are becoming exactly like Pharaoh. To understand Pharaoh and how his decision ultimately became his fate. And the Bible doesn't use this word fate in terms of some sort of, uh, uh, you know, non-personal force out there from which you can never escape. The Bible does use this word fate to describe the tragic end of all those who ultimately insist on rejecting Christ. But what is happening with Pharaoh is that he is sealing his fate every time he says no to God and hardens his heart. To understand what's going on with Pharaoh and the sheer lunacy of what he's doing, I like to use the illustration of a skydiver. You jump out of a plane. Well, guess what? You've just set in motion a series of events that are irreversible. You fall 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 feet. You say... I really don't think I'd like to jump out of that plane anymore. That's a wonderful thought to have, but it's too late. You've jumped. Now this only ends one way. It's okay. You're thinking to yourself, I've got a parachute. I thought this would be a fun adventure. I jumped. I don't like it. No worries. I'll pull my chute at at any given moment here, and I'll be free of this terrible, terrible situation I find myself in. But as you continue your free fall, you think to yourself, wow, this is actually kind of enjoyable. I mean, look at the view. It's wonderful. Look at the ground all the way down there. Wow. You can see for miles and miles. And the rush of the wind is kind of invigorating. I've come now to rather enjoy this free fall that I'm in. I think I might enjoy it a little longer. And so you don't pull the cord. You don't deploy the chute. You choose not to pull it. And the Bible talking about this in in spiritual terms, says that what is happening is that your heart is hardening. And so it is. You begin to love what can only be understood as a completely unnatural experience. The image of God sinning against God, the very person in which the image was formed and fashioned. You continue your fall and the ground starts to get closer and you look at it and in the back of your mind you're thinking, this could end badly for me, but I'll wait just a few more seconds. And you continue to choose not to pull that cord. Perhaps you look around for all of your fellow skydiving friends and you recognize that they've all pulled their cords long ago. And now you're here all alone, hurtling towards the ground. Now it's at this moment that most of us say, what's going to happen is I'm going to wait until that very last second and I'm going to pull that ripcord. But what is actually happening is that you are falling more in love with death than you are with the God of life. This is where all analogies break down. This is where common sense and that innate drive that we have to live would compel us to pull the ripcord on the parachute. But what is going on spiritually in the real world, in your hearts, in my heart, every time we choose to sin against the Lord, is that in a spiritual sense, we are hurtling towards the ground. We see it rushing up to meet us, 
And there is this moment as we're free falling and we're thinking to ourselves, I really should have grabbed that cord by now, but I don't really need to. I can land on the ground without deploying my chute. We see the day of the Lord drawing near, and yet we deceive ourselves. The hardness of the heart becomes so complete that we know destruction is certain, yet we trick ourselves into thinking, somehow, I'll still escape this. And you won't. The nature of sin is precisely this. It is madness. It is folly. You have lost your mind. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you're looking at the world around us, you're like, man, things are getting really bad. They are. You are not mistaken. We do our best to try and pull back our country from the craziness it has descended into. But here's the reality. We have all contributed to this insanity, and there is only one who can wind back the clock. There is only one that will rescue us. His name is Jesus. And every day you play with him, you play games with him, that is a day in which you harden your heart against him The mistake we're all making is that we're thinking at some point God will bless me with some sort of a deathbed experience in which I can repent. And here's the reality. We don't know we'll ever get that deathbed experience. You could die this afternoon. You are thinking to yourself, I'll go home. I'll watch the Super Bowl later this evening. It's going to be a great afternoon. And what you don't realize is that this very day, your soul might be required of you. Some of you are thinking, oh, you know, I'll just... I'll just wait and see what happens. In all of my years of ministry, I've been called to the hospital about a dozen times, generally late at night, because the doctors have said, this person isn't going to make the morning. They would like to talk to someone about what their life is going to look like when they pass away. I've been called in, and I can tell you this, with none of them, with none of them, as they are on their deathbed being told that they're not likely to see the morning, with none of them did they ever truly confess Christ or place their faith in him, knowing the end was imminent. I remember in particular one lady. I was called up there at midnight, and I sat with her. Her daughter had wanted me to come. Her daughter, a born-again Christian, saying, please, can you talk to my mom? She has not trusted in Jesus. She isn't promised the morning. And as I sat with her, she said to me, I shared with her about Christ. I said the end was upon her. There were no more opportunities coming. And do you know what she said to me? I'll never forget this. She looked at me, she coughed, she's having a hard time breathing, and she says, I'll be all right. You won't. It's over. That is the fate of some of you who are hearing this message today. If you will not hear the voice of God and repent today, you are doing something to your heart which you think you understand, but you don't. You are making it hard. You are responsible for it turning into a non-responsive stone that even in your final moments you will be incapable because now you have fully embraced the curse of God. You have fallen in love with death. You don't want the Lord. You'll never come back. The Bible says if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart so long as it is called today. This is your moment. This is your time. This is God's kindness. And you're not promised another. 
And to expect or to think that there might be another is to presume upon his grace and his goodness. How many deathbed conversions do you think are recorded for us in Scripture? Some of you are holding up the zero sign at me. It's not true. There is one. There is one deathbed conversion. It is offered to us so that we may never despair for our loved ones. It is offered for us that we will continue to share the love and the grace and the mercy of God with those whom we know have not been pardoned and have not received the atoning blood of Jesus. Jesus is dying on the cross and there's a thief dying right next to him. Jesus has about three hours left to live. This poor thief also has about three hours left to live. As they are making their way to Calvary, this poor thief is probably dragging his cross right along behind Jesus. The women of Jerusalem are crying for Christ, and Jesus says to them, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If they do this when the wood is green, what do you think will happen when the wood is dry and has become like a tinderbox? And he is warning the nation in that moment, repent now. If this is the curse that comes, just imagine what comes next. Of course, the thief, he's nailed to the cross and he continues to mock Christ, to scorn him, to ridicule him. And at some point, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And immediately the Holy Spirit begins to work. We're not sure exactly at which moment it takes place, but there is a moment in which this thief is sitting there next to Christ dying. Jesus is dying, and he looks over, and this man whom he has mocked and scorned and made fun of, he watches as this poor, poor man heaves himself up and down the cross, pouring out his blood, and he realizes in this moment this fate is well-deserved for him, but not for Christ. And he says to his fellow, hey, leave him alone. We deserve what we got. But he hasn't done anything to deserve this. But he takes it a step further. And he recognizes that Jesus is Lord. And so he says to Christ, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the Lord says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. We are given one deathbed conversion so that none of us will lose hope and none of us will despair. That we will all continue to plead and to cry with our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones. Give your life to Jesus. Worship him. Exalt him as the greatest treasure of your life. We are given exactly one that we may not despair and no more in order that none may presume. You think this is a common phenomenon, people turning around and giving their lives to Jesus on their deathbeds every day? It doesn't happen. I'm telling you from experience, it doesn't happen. It may happen once or twice, but if this is what you're counting on, you're making a fatal mistake. The author of Hebrews, writing to a church that has come under hardship 
that has been persecuted and has experienced calamity. They are no longer gathering to worship Christ. They're kind of scattered apart. The author of Hebrews is telling this church in Jerusalem to continue to walk in faithfulness to the Lord, to continue to gather together. And he's marshalling all of the arguments. He's talking about Jesus and the priesthood and the old covenant and the new covenant. He's bringing all of these theological arguments to bear. But he makes this really profound statement in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. That's what I want to say to you today. If you hear the voice of God speaking to your heart, calling you to trust in Jesus, you have today. And what an amazing, wonderful, undeserved gift you've been given. You've got today. You didn't deserve today. You didn't earn today. God never had to give you today. He would have been righteous to have removed you from this world the moment you sinned against him years ago. But in his kindness, he has given you today. What a grace. What a gift. I am reminded of the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure, none, he says, in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back, God says, from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The longer we resist, the longer we harden our hearts. Paul says that we are storing up wrath. Sooner or later, that wrath is going to break forth like a dam, like a flood pent up behind a dam. It will come. That's a promise. But why should it have to come to us when we have been given Jesus? Why should we continue to store up wrath when we have right now the forgiveness of the cross? And so if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus, in the words of Ezekiel, I say, turn back. Turn back. Why would you die? You're cutting down the tree that has sheltered you, and it will fall on you. Turn back. Why would you die? You are weaving the rope that will become your noose. Turn back. Why should you die? You are lighting the fire that will burn you. Turn back. Why would you die? You're sharpening the sword that is going to pierce your own soul. Turn back. Why would you die? You are forging the chains that will bind you forever. Turn back. Why would you die? You are digging the foundations of the house, and the house will fall in on top of you and be your tomb. There is no reason for any of you to go before the Lord in judgment. There is no reason for any of you to be like Pharaoh. You say, what do we have to do, Pastor? The opposite of what Pharaoh did. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not listen. So today, I close with this. Soften your heart and hear God speak. Pray with me, church. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word and its clarity. And we pray, Lord, for those loved ones 
dear friends who still have not trusted in you. They continue to delay. They continue to think that they'll have tomorrow, and I pray, God, that you would just remove that from them, that they would know they're not guaranteed tomorrow, that it is an incredible miracle that they even have this moment right now. Help us to bear witness to that truth that we're playing with a curse that we're not in control of, that we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we can change our hearts and our minds anytime we want, not knowing that you are sovereign even over the sinner's heart. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just bring to salvation and repentance any who are here today who've been hearing this gospel message for a long time, and yet they won't turn. Show them, Lord, how foolish this decision is and bring them to the cross. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would bring us all to the cross, that we would trust in what your son has done there. Let us be like the thief who realized that you were the king and confessed your glory to all those gathered. Lord, do this work in our souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.